Richard this time. Also our guests today on Money Talk, Lashar, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA, and Barry Wood, RTHK's International Economic Correspondent in Washington. Just before we go, a quick look at the weather. Mainly fine, cool this morning, dry during the day with a maximum temperature of around 19 degrees. Moderate northeasterly winds becoming fresh later. Uh, the outlook mainly fine and dry for the rest of this week. And on New Year's Day, the temperature difference between day and night will be relatively large. It'll be particularly cold on Friday morning, we're told. Uh, 15 Celsius right now, 79% relative humidity. We'll see you tomorrow morning uh, for uh, Money Talk at 8 o'clock. A back chat in a moment is the best of back chat. But first, the headlines with Andrew. Researchers at the Chinese University say pregnant women in Hong Kong are taking in excessive sodium, double the recommendation of the World Health Organization. The university surveyed about 160 women in early pregnancy between 2017 and 2018 and found that half of the respondents are taking in excessive sodium. Researchers also say pregnant women are taking in insufficient micronutrients and 97% of them do not meet the recommended fiber intake. Professor Ronald Ma of the university says unhealthy diets may affect the birth weight of the newborns. For pregnancy, high sodium intake has been shown to be associated with higher risk of pregnancy-associated high blood pressure and also preeclampsia, which is a severe form of high blood pressure during pregnancy. Unhealthy diet also has long-term effects on the child, and therefore healthy diet is both beneficial for the mother as well as for the baby. Turning overseas, thousands of people in New York State are digging their way out of more than a meter of snow, which fell during a deadly Christmas blizzard across the northeast of the U.S. At least 60 people are known to have died, half of them in New York. In the worst-hit city, Buffalo, military police are being deployed to enforce a driving ban so that snow plows can clear the roads. The executive of the county of Erie, Mark Polencar, said residents are being told not to drive. Please stay out of the city of Buffalo. Uh, You're hindering efforts to do cleanup. You see these people are walking right around these giant dump trucks and these giant high lifts. And and I know you got to get to the grocery store. I understand that. But be careful when you're out there. The Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida is facing a renewed spate of resignations from his cabinet, having already lost three ministers in as many months. Yesterday, his reconstruction minister, Kenya Akiba, stepped down. He was facing allegations of illegally making political payments to his aides, wife and mother which he denies. His resignation was followed by Mio Sugita of Parliamentary Vice Minister for Internal Affairs. President Vladimir Putin has signed a decree banning the supply of oil and oil products to the countries taking part in the price cap on Russian crude oil shipments. It'll come into force for five months at the start of February. Here's the BBC's Ali McConnell. A price cap of $60 a barrel on Russian seaborne oil imports was agreed in December by the G7 group of wealthy nations, the European Union and Australia. It was introduced as a means of squeezing Moscow's funds for its war in Ukraine. The Kremlin has insisted the cap won't make any difference, but Russia is now introducing retaliatory measures. The decree signed by President Putin described these as a direct response to unfriendly actions by the United States and its allies, which it said were contradictory to international law. Police in India are investigating the deaths of two Russians in the eastern state of Odisha. 
Pavel Antov was a wealthy businessman and politician who had posted tweets critical of the war in Ukraine. He was found covered in blood, having apparently fallen from the window of his hotel. His traveling companion, Vladimir Bedinov, had died two days earlier from a heart attack. A local police spokesman said there were so far no signs of foul play. One of the leaders of the failed plot to kidnap the Michigan governor two years ago has been sentenced by a U.S. federal court to 16 years in prison. The plot involved members of a right-wing militia who opposed the governor's anti-COVID measures. The BBC's Sophie Long reports. Prosecutors described 39-year-old Adam Fox as the mastermind behind the plan to break into the governor's holiday home and kidnap her at gunpoint. He was convicted of conspiracy to commit kidnapping and use of a weapon of mass destruction at a second trial in August after jurors failed to reach a verdict in the first. Prosecutors said the plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer, who'd been openly critical of former President Trump, was intended to push the country into armed conflict as a contentious presidential race approached and that Fox deserved a life sentence. The judge questioned whether he was the true leader of the plot and said 16 years was enough to serve as a deterrent. Spain has unveiled a package of financial measures to help people struggling with inflation. Around 4 million households will get a one-off cash payment, while many more will benefit from tax cuts on energy bills and food, as well as a limit on rent rises. Countries around Europe have been hit by rising prices with soaring energy costs as a result of the war in Ukraine. And anti-corruption police in Thailand have arrested the country's top parks administrator on the suspicion that he's taking bribes from his subordinates to protect them from being transferred to remote areas. Police say they caught Rachada Suryukolna Ayutya red-handed at his office where they found almost 150000 U.S. dollars in cash. Mr. Rachada said he's done nothing wrong. The director general looks after Thailand's wildlife across 150 national parks. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to a special edition of Backchat. I'm Yuki Zhang, Backchat's producer. To round up a very eventful 2022, we are bringing you the best of Backchat over the next three days, wrapping up some of the most interesting and pertinent conversations we've had throughout the course of the year. Let's get started with the raw power of nature. We'll be hearing about how Hong Kong experienced its first Typhoon 8 signal in November in 50 years, the outcome of the United Nations Climate Summit. But first, to a 4.1 magnitude earthquake back in March that was felt by more than 10,000 people here. While getting jolted away by seismic vibrations isn't exactly a common experience here, Professor Chang Long Seng from the University of Hong Kong's Department of Earth Sciences says such tremors aren't actually rare at all. He spoke to Backchat's Jim Gould and Ada Wong. Actually, these sort of earthquakes are, are pretty common. And over the entire world, you know, uh, light earthquakes like this, uh, magnitude 3 to 4, there were probably on average about uh, 20,000, 30,000 a year. So it's not uncommon. And in fact, uh, a lot of people thought that Hong Kong is not exactly on the plate boundary. That is, uh, I would say, uh, not entirely correct because oh, uh, right. as we look at the, the plate motion, how the you know, various regions uh, move about, you know, there is, in fact, some kind of uh, a fault motion just uh, quite close to Hong Kong. And perhaps, you know, it's uh, this fault motion that was responsible for this earthquake this time. 
So w- w- when you say quite close, um, how close are we talking about? Well, when we look at the, um, you know, um, the tectonic uh, configuration or the, t- the sort of the tectonic structure, and we have right uh, to the south of Hong Kong, you know, within a few uh, uh, tens of kilometers, we have one core high phone fort, which is active. Uh, Haiphong extending from the city of Haiphong to our uh, northeast, uh, all the way through the south of Hong Kong. And in fact, this uh, Haiphong fort is only one of the several forts of a, a major fort zone that runs in a northeast-southwest direction. Now, why is this uh, fort zone active? You know, when we look at the um, the plate motion, there is actually a small motion between, say, uh, South China and uh, South China Sea. South China Sea is the area where Indonesia or um, western part of Philippines are located. But the motion is not big. You know, we're talking about on the average, um, perhaps, you know, 0.5 to 0.7 millimeter a year, a very, very small motion but accumulated over, say, the decades or a century. You know, it could still build up substantial amount of energy um, to produce once in a while a sizable event. Once in a while, how, how frequent would that be? I mean, how safe are we from a, you know, a major earthquake event? Well, we have to look at uh, the, the, the risk, you know, uh, the motion is so small, so uh, most likely, you know, in our lifetime, uh, we would not be able to see a big one. Um, perhaps, you know, over the period of um, several hundred years, there might be one um, close enough to cause some, some uh, you know, damage to Hong Kong. Um, so we, we are not as active as uh, Taiwan or Japan, you know, the uh, activity is probably just about uh, 1% of those in uh, Taiwan or Japan. But if we are talking about, say, in the Taiwan region, a magnitude 7 earthquake every 10 years, then we, we, we may be talking about a magnitude 7 earthquake every, say, four to 500 years, you know, along this entire zone. Okay. Mm. So, so I, I don't think um, most, of, most of us will see any major event um, of that scale in our lifetime. But it happens on a geologic time scale. You mentioned that we need to be prepared, uh, but I guess that uh, unlike Japan and Taiwan, um, our public education does not really focus on, you know, what we should do uh, when we um, feel an earthquake. Uh, uh, should more be done? Well, I always think so. You know, we have to prepare for all sort of... Uh, uh, natural or even um, uh, man-made uh, disasters like um, tsunami or uh, earthquakes or, you know, just like typhoon. We should have a basic uh, awareness, like uh, in case we hear on the news that there was a tsunami coming from, say, the Philippines, you know, what we should do. Or uh, in the event of an earthquake, how we should protect ourselves, you know, in a very spontaneous manner. And I think those are basic knowledge. And I went to California for school, and we had uh, an earthquake drill every year. And so we learned, say, to duck under uh, a table or or stand below some heavy structure, like the door frame. The door frame is uh, normally more strongly 
built, and then um, stay away from windows and uh, turn off the gas, uh, that sort of things. And we should also have uh, an emergency kit for at least three days, you know, with uh, water and first aid supply. So these are pretty basic. After an incident uh, like this uh, earth tremor in the middle of the night, um, I mean, p- people do get concerned. They think, uh, you know, if there was a strong earthquake here, would would our buildings be able to uh, withstand it? I mean, what are the building standards in these circumstances? Okay, uh, maybe we'll start backtrack a little bit on the standard in Hong Kong. Yeah. There are two major sources of standard in Hong Kong. One is actually the design, the structural design manual in the highway department that gives out the, the design criteria for what to do for highway structures. For buildings, it's less office because this historically Hong Kong is situated in a low and moderate sort of facility zone. Okay, and also it also situated in one of the worst tropical typhoon area. With the typhoon we know, which actually is very large, was taller the building higher of the load. And also what we find that the wind load itself, the magnitude of the force is very large. Very often it's larger than the than the size of the load generate force. Oh. And we also find that the capacity of the design also in general can cover the, the, the seismic design load. The only major difference for that is uh, in seismic design, they also require a certain fertility and certain confinement design for, for concrete design. And in Hong Kong, over 90% of buildings are concrete. So the, the government actually buried some of embedded, so it's embedded some of the design into the concrete cook, in the current concrete cook. So if you design for the wind forces and detailed for the for the seismic details, then they actually cover uh, quite a safe margin into the, mm-hmm. in the design. Of course, this is not a bulletproof situation. That's why currently uh, the building department uh, started a consultancy to, to develop a standalone seismic cook, and this is in progress at the moment. And that was Hong Kong Institution of Engineers Council Member Alexis Lee and Professor Chen Long Sen from the University of Hong Kong's Department of Earth Sciences wrapping up that earth-shaking discussion. Let's move on to a topic that will affect literally everyone in the coming years, climate change and its dramatic effects on our lives. This past July was Hong Kong's hottest month since records started being kept in 1884 as heat waves swept across the globe. So, why is this happening? And is this a harbinger of things to come? Find out in this discussion between Hong Kong Meteorological Society spokesperson Len Wing Mo and our hosts Janice Wong and Jenny Lam. Temperature of the world has risen by more than one degree in the last hundred years. And many of us would thought that one degree is pretty insignificant. But this is not the case, because if we talk about the distribution of temperatures, the sort of climate change is now giving us a biased distribution, meaning that temperature will shift towards the hot side. So despite the fact that the rise in average temperature is only one degree Celsius, we see a lot more of heat waves like this. And uh, we do have uh, scientists working on computer models and the results show that heat waves of this magnitude has increased by at least 10 times, so 1,000%. And that is simply because of the results of uh, climate change. Are we at the point of no return as far as climate change is concerned? Uh, I think uh, the scientists are telling us that 
the type the things that we're experiencing right now are unavoidable for uh, the medium and indeed long term, uh, it is possible to minimize uh, or limit global warming if uh, countries around the world and industries and indeed individuals change their behaviors quite substantially immediately and in the near term. So uh, there are lots of engineering solutions, there are behavioral changes that could take place that would enable us to meet the objectives of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, which is to limit global warming. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the solar geoengineering options. Are these technologies, you know, only available to those countries that can afford it, and does it actually create inequity for those countries that cannot afford it? I really would discourage uh, placing any store in these kinds of so-called geoengineering solutions. Uh, of course, they're being investigated, but there are lots of problems. The first problem is that if we start to imagine that you know, that some charlatan comes along and says that uh, he can solve this problem through some geoengineering solution, then that provides strength to those who say that we can continue living the way we're living now and specifically continuing to burn fossil fuels. So if we do implement geoengineering solutions, the effects will be unpredictable. There is some research suggesting that the types of interventions that you mentioned could in fact make things worse for some parts of the world, in particular the poorest parts of the world. So, the, so we're not talking about a sort of regional solution here, we're talking about a global solution. And cutting back on fossil fuels, we, we, should, we should note, not only has benefits for limiting global warming and, and ultimately climate change, but also will save many millions of people's lives. You know, burning coal uh, kills tens of millions of people every year just for, from respiratory and cardiovascular illnesses and so forth. So. There are, there are solutions available to us right now, but the problem is uh, that governments and, and industries aren't willing to take them. Well, I'd like to ask Len Wing Mo, who I know you have on, does this indicate the models were wrong and climate change is now quickly accelerating around the world? Well, uh, I think uh, models are not perfect. There is always some, something wrong or something not accurate about it. But if you're talking about forecasting temperature, I think the models... Uh, did a very good job. If you talk about rainfall, then it's a totally different matter. So if we, I mean, uh, I mean, we have one way of, of uh, verifying whether models are, are good or not, which is what we call hind casting. Uh, we asked the model to start a hundred years ago and then do computation up to this per, uh, right moment. And then we have all the hundred years of data to verify it. And the results suggest that the models are doing actually a pretty good job. Yeah, so Professor Harris, you know what we're going to do. We, you, you're saying we need to cut fossil fuel. What are some of the really practical alternatives for a place like Hong Kong, for example? Uh, and particularly, what can we do for the least well-off in society? I think the first thing we need from government is a commitment to uh, housing that is capable of dealing with uh, higher temperatures of the future. You know, Mike Weeks told us about, uh, you know, housing in the UK, and I lived there for several years myself and know that the housing there is horrible. It's, as he said, it's not good for heat, it's not good for cold. Um, well, we have a similar problem here in Hong Kong. Everybody, almost everybody, lives in a, in a concrete box, and these concrete boxes are not insulated. And that means in the wintertime, as everybody knows, there are a few days every year where we need some heat. It's really quite uncomfortable, but much of the year it's very, very hot, and we need to run air conditioning almost constantly, especially at night, to, to sleep and so forth. Uh, and you can imagine the conditions for people who are living in cage homes and the like that might 
not have air conditioning. So what the government needs to do is ensure that all of the buildings in Hong Kong, all of those new buildings that go up are, are super insulated. And, and as far as I'm aware, there's no intention to do that. Then they need to start working on retrofitting buildings and, and tr doing whatever is possible to try to insulate buildings so that much less energy is needed to cool them. And when, when a room is cool, the room or the, or the flat stays cooler for longer without needing more air conditioning. And then, of course, you can see the benefit of that is that there's fewer air conditioners running to contribute to the heat island effect of, of, the, of the city, particularly, you know, Kowloon and the built-up areas. Um, that's one concrete step that we can, that the government can take right now. Just tell us a little bit more about this idea of insulation. You know, you can have double glazed windows that, that keep the heat out, keep the heat in when necessary. What, what else? Sure. The, the, but the first thing is we need the government to get involved because right now um, uh, what we need are standards requiring this. And particularly, I would say we need these uh, for public housing. So the government, including the new chief executive and his, and his, his administration, are promising to build you know, thousands and thousands of new homes for people, and rightly so. But I want to know what kind of buildings will be going up. The ones that are putting up now will be locking the occupants into using lots and lots of energy for the life of those buildings uh, unnecessarily. So there, certainly there are technologies available to put those buildings up in a way that that, that makes them much easier to, to cool and, you know, for a brief period still in the winter. Do you think we should have uh, some sort of warning system in place in future, like we do for rain and typhoon? Yeah, we do have a um, uh, uh, very hot warning issue by the Hong Kong Observatory. Uh, but I think the industries, particularly those people, um, those industries involving people working outdoor, uh, should... Um, I mean, um, develop some guidelines. And even uh, as far as the government is concerned, I think legislation is probably required to take into account the future heat wave, which will last longer and more severe. In the sense that um, people working outdoors should be given ample uh, um, time to take a rest in between and take, uh, take in as, as much water as needed. Uh, because right now, although this is not known to the public, uh, we do have very fine resolution, uh, temperature forecast and weather forecast in different parts of Hong Kong uh, over the entire 24-hour period. So I think the industry can make use of this information uh, to design plans during the early morning uh, as to how to um, uh, 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 provide a suitable uh, mitigation uh, to people who are at, at, at the highest risk. That was Lan Wing Mo, the spokesperson of the Hong Kong Meteorological Society, and Paul Harris, the chair professor of global and environmental studies from the Education University of Hong Kong. Well, with the excess heat also comes more extreme weather events. Last month, we saw the first number eight typhoon warning signal in the month of November in 50 years. Why are November storms so unusual? Here's the Hong Kong Observatory's senior scientific officer, Li Shukming. To have a number eight uh, signal in November is certainly not very common. When I searched the record, the record begins in 1946. There are only two tropical cyclones which necessitated the issuance of number eight signal in November. Uh, one is 1972, the other one is uh, 1954. 
interested to say because the two tropical cyclones are of the same name, they both are called uh, Pamela. It's quite a coincidence. In Hong Kong, the normal, I can say normal, the typhoon season will be from July to September. So into uh, October or November, which is uh, already autumn of Hong Kong, it would be not that common for us to be affected by uh, tropical cyclones. And also uh, to have a number eight signal is not very common. It's quite, uh, I can say, quite unseasonal. But there are still examples of tropical cyclones affecting us in autumn. Yeah. And, and Nelge is uh, one of that. It's the third one uh, so far on our record. Of course, we remember Mankut. That was October as well. Is this a trend that we can expect to happen? The storms coming later and later and stronger and stronger? In that case, um, I cannot say. Uh, I could not rule out that because of the latest situations, the climate change uh, results in uh, extreme weather happening uh, more and more often. So uh, cannot rule out the the possibilities of uh, more tropical cyclones affecting us in winter time or uh, not in winter time, in autumn time. And the autumn uh, tropical cyclones uh, would be quite challenging. Uh, for forecasting because in autumn we would be affected by uh, the northeast monsoon. So the intensity of uh, tropical cyclones coming into the South China Sea would be affected by another uh, weather system, which is the northeast monsoon. And this makes the forecast of the intensity of these tropical uh, cyclones quite challenging. Can, Can you elaborate on how climate change is contributing to this trend? Because in recent years, it was uh, observed that the climate change uh, makes extreme uh, weather happening uh, more frequently. So How? Is it, is it different in the t- temperature of the sea and the land? That would be one of the reasons. And we have to be ready to face these effects uh, with uh, more and more uh, effects uh, from uh, extreme weather uh, happening. Uh, well and more chances of uh, extreme weather uh, affecting us. And Ms. Lee, earlier you were saying that the, uh, the, in, under the influence of the uh, northeast monsoon, it's uh, more challenging this time to uh, predict the, uh, the uh, track of uh, Nalge. Um, is also it be- the intensity. All right. Is it, the intensity. Is it because of uh, the, I mean, can you explain why? Is it because of the uh, dry and cool air from the uh, northeast monsoon? Yes. And also there is another factor for these autumn uh, tropical cyclones because in autumn's time, the sea surface, the sea temperature over the northern parts of the South China Sea will be lower. And such lower sea temperatures, in fact, would not be favorable for any uh, development of uh, tropical cyclones. So that's why when uh, Nauge come into the South China Sea and approach the coast of uh, Guangdong, in fact, is uh, weakening uh, gradually. One, uh, number one, because of the lower sea temperature, and the other, because when it comes closer to the coast, it will be intruded by the relatively cooler and also drier air from the northeast monsoon. So both factors would uh, contribute to the weakening of Nauke. 
All right. Uh, Miss Lee, I have a email here from uh, our listener Alonzo. He says that by issuing the T8 signal yesterday for what turned out to be a brief period of moderate wind and showers and thereby forcing a closure of the city, the Hong Kong Observatory made a mockery of the city in front of many of the world's financial leaders um, because there is of course a, a financial summit taking place here and uh, Alonso goes on to say that heads should roll there. Um, Ms. Lee, um, I guess Alonso's comment uh, doesn't really come as a, a surprise uh, to you, right? I mean, the observatory must be used to receiving these kinds of uh, criticisms in the past, especially over the timing of the T8. Um, can you explain what factors the observatory considers when it decides on uh, whether to raise the signal to T8? It's not just about uh, wind speed, is it? The signal, the meaning of this signal depends on the wind strength affecting the territory. So when we forecast or expect gale winds to be to affect Hong Kong, that would necessitate the issuance of a numeric signal. Right, but uh, in this case, Nalge, it was uh, kind of strange, right? Because it, it was very close to Hong Kong, but the wind speed during uh, much of T8 wasn't that strong. I mean, um, much, uh, I mean, the wind speed was uh, around 50 or 70 kilometers per hour um, during T8 most of the time, wasn't it? gales uh, affecting Hong Kong during the number eight period for the wind strength uh, of uh, tropical cyclones to affect Hong Kong there are two factors uh, one is uh, depending on the strength or the intensity of that tropical cyclone and the other one is the distance of the tropical cyclone from Hong Kong for the case of Nauke it's really come uh, quite close to Hong Kong the closest distance from Hong Kong is around uh, 40 kilometers only. Now it was closest to Hong Kong at around 2 in the morning, which was uh, only about 40 km- kilometers from Hong Kong. And what was the highest wind speed recorded by Nalge? During the number eight, uh, there are gales uh, affecting uh, various areas. And also for some high ground areas, there are even storm force winds. That was Hong Kong Observatory's Lee Shukming. Stay tuned for more after the news. G7 powers, the European Union and Australia. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back to the Best of Back Chat with me, Yuki Zhang. Before the news, we looked at some unusual climate events that happened throughout the year. We'll be sticking with environmental issues for the next 25 minutes or so. With a look at the new plastic bag levy, which will be doubled to one Hong Kong dollar starting from this Saturday. But before that, let's take a look at the United Nations Climate Change Conference. Last month, for the first time, world leaders agreed to set up a loss and damage fund to help pay for the negative effects of climate change on poor countries. But is this enough? How do we decide who to pay more? Jim Gould and Ada Wong heard more from political philosopher Jeremy Most from the University of New South Wales in Australia. I think that it's very significant, actually, that it's got on the COP agenda, and I think it's, it's definitely a step forward. Although it is the case that the details of how much will be available, who puts into the fund and how the fund will be triggered, remain to be worked out. So while we should celebrate the fact that it is on the agenda... I think it's too early to say whether it will will be a success. Previous funding commitments made by major countries 
uh, have failed to live up to expectations. So we re need to be really cautious, I think, about uh, clapping our hands too hard uh, about this particular development until we see the, the cash on the table or the cash in the bank and that cash flows through to the country that need it. Is it usual, Professor Moss, that um, the developed countries will contribute more, like the US and EU, uh, but uh, there has been discussion about the role of China. Um, you know, it's a, a very large emerging economy and still developing in UN terms, but um, it's, uh, it will be the second largest economy. So what, what's your thoughts on this? Well, I, I do think that uh, China should play a role in contributing somewhat. I think, though, that we can't just take emissions that are produced now or even in the last few years as our guide here because countries like the United States and my own country, Australia, but also many European countries, have been emitting very large amounts of greenhouse gases for a very long time. And many of those countries' uh, emissions, a large amount of them, have occurred since 1990, which was the date of the first Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, synthesis report. So I think when we take a historical view, that should mean that countries like the US and the UK and many European countries should be contributing, in my view, the lion's share, because that would be a fair thing to do, given the contribution those countries have made over a long period of time to the likelihood of climate change. Whether it actually works out that way uh, remains to be seen. But I think morally speaking, that's where the onus lies. It lies on the countries that have continuously put a large amount of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and also who can afford to do it as well. We should add that to the mix when we're deciding who, who should pay what. Right. Professor Moss, the um, COP27 also reaffirmed the goal of keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial values. Now, scientists have already said that this is um, not very meaningful because it might rise above 1.5 degrees Celsius. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, well, I mean, it's good that they reaffirmed that. But really, I think without firm action to make sure that we're phasing out fossil fuels, well, I'm certain that that's not enough. So in 2022, emissions, the world's emissions decreased by about 1%. Now, 1% doesn't sound like very much, but emissions need to be decreasing and decreasing drastically. So we're going in the wrong direction. And indeed, uh, there was data released in the first week of COP, I believed, by an organisation called Climate Trace, which I think headed up by former US President Al Gore, showing that in many cases the emissions, the volume of emissions that countries are reporting to the United Nations are below their actual emissions when measured by satellite data and other tools and so on. So it's quite likely that the problem is worse than we think. So simply reaffirming the goal of 1.5 degrees or keeping temperature rises under that is really not enough. It's inadequate. And, and I think on that score, this particular COP has been a failure because it's failed to agree to the phase down, or phase out rather, of all fossil fuels, not, not just coal. Uh, Lan Chu Ying, good morning to you. Was this COP27 a failure in your view? It's a serious failure. Mm. And... I think the COP27 has failed us in our effort to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I was following very closely how the conference evolved. And actually, at the, in the penultimate edition of the uh, final document, there was a very good reference to the urgency of the problem. 
it says that the greenhouse gas emissions should come down by 43 percent by 2030. But according to all that the countries have said about their reduction, the,、um, the calculations say that it would only come down by 0.3 percent by 2030. So <laughs> practically nothing. So it's a great urgency in in in, in the in the problem. But in the final version, this was deleted. There was totally no sense of urgency in the final、uh, document, and actually, nothing on what actions should be taken to chase after the countries for their so-called nationally determined contribution to a greenhouse gas、uh, reduction. So now the reduction of greenhouse gas emission is hanging in the air. Uh, there is no no one chasing after anyone、uh, to 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 fulfil their commitment or actually letting people know what their commitments are. So this is a great disappointment. No no one is taking seriously the subject of emission reduction. Um, you mentioned that、um, you know one of the drafts said emission must come down by forty three percent. I'm wondering, you know, what sort of drastic change to our daily life、uh, would that mean? Well,、uh, it's very simple. For the normal, I mean, the the man in the street, what 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 he could do would be to reduce the electricity consumption at home, and you can achieve this easily by not using air conditioning. Uh, using less hot for、uh, less hot water for taking a long shower and, and and so on. There are a lot of things which you could do as as a man in the street or just as a normal citizen. So、uh, my my guess, my my own experience is that once I switched off the air conditioner, my electricity bill comes down by something like seventy to eighty percent. So so this is. Uh, not as difficult as people might try to say, although it involved a change, a change in the habits. So that's the difficult part. How, how much of a difference would that make, that individual action, or if you like, collective individual action, compared with uh, industry, uh, uh, industrial buildings, and that sort of thing? Well, actually, we have a good experiment、uh, done in Japan after the big earthquake. Uh, after the big earthquake,、um, the government asked people to 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 use as little electricity as possible because they switched off all the nuclear power plants. And this summer, by the individual efforts of the Japanese people, that the electricity electricity consumption came down by twenty percent. So just and. Just an announcement from the government and the cooperation of the population, you, you, you could achieve 20% reduction by individual actions. That was former Hong Kong Observatory Director Lam Chiu Ying and political philosopher Jeremy Moss from the University of New South Wales in Australia. And it wasn't just top global leaders who had a say in the COP27 conference. Young delegates from around the world also made their voices heard. Among them. Was Phineas Cheng from Hong Kong's Carbon Care Inner Lab? She shared her excitement and experience with Jim Gold and Ada Wong. COP27 has been a hustling week. On the first week, the negotiation was very slow for the national delegates, and it was a more delightful moment when 
the negotiation got extended and finally get a deal on loss and damage in the end. But as mentioned, that the loss and damage agreement hasn't get a concrete agreement on how the finance would be provided and where it would come from. So I think the civil society is still more skeptical on how the loss and damage would bring real impacts to those most impacted by the, the climate change. And uh, this is not your first COP conference, right? You you were there also in Scotland? Not really. Like uh. Carbon Care InnoLab has sent youth delegates um, for some years now, but it's my first COP. Okay. So how, how many how many um, Hong Kong young people uh, went uh, to Egypt? So we total have eight delegates from Hong Kong this year, and half of us have attended the first week, and half of the team has stayed for two weeks. And mm. um, what was the atmosphere like? So the atmosphere um, was very busy, puzzling, mm-hmm. and as youth delegates, we tried to make our most to have high-level conversation with negotiators, including from um, international NGOs like World Bank and also from parties like China, um, U.S., and also we paid a lot of attention to build a network with the Global South countries and indigenous communities who need the most support from the more developed cities and countries. So was it useful from that point of view? I mean, were you able to to build and strengthen and expand your networks? Yes, I think definitely. I think uh, this year they put more attention on youth engagement and ways to engage them. For example, in the Blue Zone area, there is a youth and children pavilion, which is the first time to be appeared at COPE. And in the pavilion, there are different panel discussions organized by youth, and it definitely provides a platform for youth to voice their topics. And also our Hong Kong delegates have organized a seminar in this platform too. And this platform is also useful in a way that the world leaders when they pass by and go to the country pavilions, and they could also listen and have a more informal conversation with youth representatives. Right. Now, uh, Venus, uh, many years ago, I, I was at Copenhagen uh, COP, I, I think it was COP15, and I, I can see that there are many parallel events, there are arts and cultural events, uh, there are events organized by environmental activists uh, and versus, you know, the very serious atmosphere inside a horse, which we are not allowed to enter, where there are delegates and, you know, from different countries and negotiators. And and a lot of people say, okay, civil society can, can really be just uh, an influencers and, and lobbyists, and probably, you know, there is more engagement this year. But how do you see uh, the role of young people and um, civil society in the future playing a bigger role in, in COP and similar conferences? I definitely think young people is crucial to attend this conference, although there are rising voices to say what's a role in the formal negotiation when it seems like the high level is so hard to reach with. And I think as young people, the presence there is to unite youth voices from all over the world. And I'm particularly thankful that I have known some 
uh, youth leaders from Peru and also Africa this year, especially on the topic that I work on is about food systems. So knowing the first-hand story and they're really telling the urgency back home that has motivated me a lot more to continue the climate advocacy work that in Hong Kong to see what's the potential and possibility on food system, on the decarbonization. And also young people could mobilize movements inside COP, although it's a bit difficult in Egypt this year, but we do have protests or having climate clock to walk around the venue while the formal meetings are taking places to remind the leaders the urgency of the action right now. How do you think Hong Kong youth uh, could play a bigger role in our city? I think Hong Kong youth could start by raising their own awareness. And by raising awareness, current care in the lab has been putting a lot of effort in climate education and also the youth delegates ourselves. We, after COP27, we want to roll out new climate education program, perhaps with the network we have established in COP27. And I think also finding allies is important when you want to grow your voices in the climate change movement, because sometimes you feel defeated by the eco anxiety. And so I think the Youth Climate Advocate program by Governor Care in the Lab is also very useful. Also, there's social media that could reach a lot of audience and grow your community right now. So if people want to start their own climate advocacy movement, they can start right now with less cost. And I think it's really just start, do not wait, and grow the movement. Now, we had this uh, agreement on uh, loss and damage to help poorer countries, but th- there was no real progress on phasing out fossil fuels. So uh, how do you and your friends and colleagues feel after this COP27? How do you feel about the future? On the fossil fuel matter, we definitely have a strong disappointment on this because during COP, the strong voices, especially from the global south, is phase out fossil fuels but not phase down fossil fuels. Also in COP28, it will be holding it in UAE, which is a huge fossil fuel exporter country. So the negotiation on promising that space out fossil view is not promising right now. How how um, how important it is to to have um, to have a bigger alliance in Hong Kong uh, of like-minded youth. Is it difficult to do, or uh, or do you think you are just a small group in Hong Kong? Yes, I think sometimes it could feel challenging and difficult, but we are. So trying to stay optimistic and do a lot of community outreach, like in September, before we go to COP, we have an LCOR conference, which is a local climate conference to engage the youth to listen to what the climate matters that they have paid attention to, to most. For example, during that time, it was Miu Miu factory that having a challenge that they may close down. So we bring up the discussion about circular economy and how um, the city can turn ways into something more useful. And I think there are youth that's gaining more attention to the climate change method. But when it comes to action, I, I think it really needs the climate education and perhaps also the storytelling to turn the attention awareness into actual action. So. And when you mention there are maybe academic burdens and also other um, personal duties in life, I think it's really the priority of how you see climate change is impacting everyone now. So just remember that we cannot earn money without air. So the planet, the environment is really of the basic needs of whatever life that we want to build on. So I think transmitting this emergency 
in the storytelling is very essential when we want to mobilize the community to do more. You just heard from Phineas Cheng, a youth delegate from Carbon Care in the Lab, who attended the UN Climate Change Conference in Egypt. Now, do you have your reusable bags ready? Starting from this Saturday, the plastic bag levy will be doubled to one Hong Kong dollar. The existing levy exemption for frozen food will also be scrapped. But Chung Shan Shan from the Hong Kong Baptist University said, the new plastic bag levy may not go well. With the upcoming municipal waste charging scheme, here's why. I agree that at the very beginning there should be、uh, some effect.、Uh, when we look at our experience, our past experience with the first phase of the plastic. Plastic bag levy in 2009. In that very year, when the plastic bag levy was imposed, 50 50 cents,、um, there was a drop in the total amount of plastic bag、uh, being disposed in the landfill per capita and in total. But、um, that figure, both figures、uh, per per capita and also、um, of the total、uh, disposal amount of plastic bags, jumped next year. Uh, in the very next year, in 2010, so that、uh, effect doesn't really last、uh, long at all. And then afterwards,、um, we didn't really see any drop, even、uh, when we have the full phase、um, of the、uh, plastic bag levy in 2015, right? And and then、uh, in in the last,、uh, I shouldn't say last.、Um, uh, Maybe five years uh, because uh, the latest figures that uh, EPD uh, released uh, was only up to 2020. But、um, in in the last five years,、uh, I, I don't know what will happen、uh, in 2021 and 2022. But uh, um, as far as、um, the data goes, it seems that even with、um, the uh, full phase uh, uh, implementation of the plastic bag levy,、um, our、uh, plastic bag disposal. Per capita and total didn't really drop,、uh, but、uh, is on the reverse trend,、um, increasing. So、uh, I think there is a need、um, to、uh, to have another uh, 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 stronger、uh, to impose a stronger、um, uh, mon- financial incentives、um, to、uh, get people to move away from、uh, one-off plastic bags. However. However, I would like to、um, remind audience that uh, in about um, next year, half、um, say mid next year,、uh, the EPD is going to、um, launch、um, the municipal solar waste charge. And remember,、uh, when the charge for, will, is launched,、um, EPD agrees that、uh, the designated plastic bags、um, for for our、uh, that will illegally. Give us、uh, the legal right to dispose of、uh, waste can also be uh,、um, sold at supermarkets as shopping bags. Now, if we look at that, even if we raise this um, um, shopping carrier bag to two dollars per bag, but、um, in about、uh, one year's time,、uh, when the municipal solar waste charge is launched,、um, the cheapest or the lowest cost bag is a three-liter designated、um, waste bag, which is which costs only thirty cents. Right, Dr. Chung. Now,、um, lawmaker Tony Chair, who is、uh, in support of a two-dollar bag levy, he, he says raising the minimum charging level to two dollars will be able to cut plastic bag usage by forty percent. So, from what you're saying,、um, it means、um, it's not really that accurate, is it?、Uh, I don't know. 
based on what um, that he had that projection. Uh, but in any case, uh, let us see. Because now, if you look at the two schemes at the same time, say now we have the municipal solar waste charge launched. You have two choices in a supermarket or in a department store. Either you pay $2 for totally new carrier bags that carries the name of the department store, or you pay $0.30. Cents. $0.30 cents for the designated bag um, that you can also use um, to, to, keep your, to, to contain your waste and put it out. So which one would you buy? <laughs> yes, okay. Well, I'm looking here at some uh, EPD statistics. This is about um, the amount of uh, recyclable materials uh, that have been recovered from uh, municipal solid waste. In 2016, the amount of plastic, this is tons per day now we're talking about, it was less than 50 tons per day. By 2020, and this is the latest statistics they have, it's nearly 300 tons a day. Isn't this a question of attitude of, you know, how people treat their plastic rather than simply charging them more and more money? Maybe that, that uh, people are just okay with just paying $2 even, um, but it's just a, a changing attitude that we need. What do you think, uh, Ms. Winograd? I do agree that there is an attitude challenge here, that it's not just about the money. And the, and the biggest challenge is we're only addressing one piece of plastic with this levy when there is so much other plastic out there. But I do think that there is messaging there, um, making people understand that there is a cost associated with plastic. It shouldn't be free. The point being made, though, about the $2 versus the 30 cents is a very important one and may make, you know, the value of a levy on plastic bags really a non-issue because it's so easy to just buy the designated bag instead. So there's probably a need for, you know, consideration on how those designated bags should be sold um, and a, a few other considerations. But I, there is, there does need to be more education, more awareness and um, more of an understanding on the issue of, of single-use plastic in general within the society so that people are more conscious and whether that's bags or food containers or straws or cups it people have to really understand the impacts of this and it may be that um th that the levy uh does help start that change, but it's an overall shift in, in mindset that we really do need. Dr. Chung, do you think a, a part of the problem with this levy scheme is that the uh, retailers get to keep the levy from the plastic shopping bag scheme? Well, it could be, because um, as uh, some uh, audience has already expressed their uh, views that um, they would like to see the levy to go for uh, good causes, environmental good causes, not um, uh, into the pocket of um, the merchant. Um, if if you you hold that view, um, obviously you will be very against um, the levy. However, if you are against the levy, that that's that's good. That means you will bring your own bag, right? So um, to me, um, I, I actually, of course, uh, if um, the levy uh, has a designated earmark use um, for environmental good causes, uh, I will definitely support it. But uh, I think the current uh, arrangement um, that. Uh, um, the merchants can can do whatever they would they want, uh, or, and I, and I know that some um, uh, big retailers um, they do uh, publish in their reports uh, saying that uh, they have used that uh, amount of money um, for 
or uh, environmental programs uh, within their company or things like that. But the issue is that um, uh, it is mainly because um, if you need a, you you get that back that you pay the levy. Um, the point, the very point is that you don't buy the those back. All right. So we we shouldn't focus be too much uh, focusing too much um, on the use of the levy and also the reporting the auditing uh, can incur um, high administrative costs, especially when you look at there are so many merchants. Some of them are, are don't don't even have a proper accounting system. So what? How how can you monitor uh, whether or not they are they are they are uh, properly uh, using the levy and then transfer to the government as tax? All right. So um, if the administrative cost is so prohibitively high, um, I would rather that we focus all the efforts on changing people's behavior and mindset, which I totally agree um, uh, as uh, the other um, um, guests uh, has, has been saying. That was Chung Shan-shan, the program director of the Hong Kong Baptist University's Master of Science in Environmental and Public Health Management program with Dana Winograd, the co-founder of Plastic Free Seas. And that's it for today's Best of Back Chat. Make sure to tune in tomorrow and on Friday for more highlights with Janice Wong right here on Radio 3. Now, the weather forecast. Mainly fine, cool in the morning. Dry during the day with a maximum temperature of around 19 degrees. Moderate northeasterly winds becoming fresh later. Right now is 17 degrees, relative humidity 67%. I'm Dr. Edmund Nam. The pandemic is surging with more contagious mutant strains. The elderly are at the highest risk if a new wave comes. Scientific data shows that those with stable health can receive COVID-19 vaccines. Take your elderly relatives to get the jab at community vaccination centers, designated general outpatient clinics, elderly health centers, private clinics, or hospital COVID-19 vaccination stations, or opt for the home vaccination service. It's now 9.30, the news with Andrew Shirovsky. One of the leaders of a failed plot to kidnap the governor of the U.S. state of Michigan has been sentenced to 16 years in prison. Prosecutors described Adam Fox as the driving force behind the plan to abduct Gretchen Whitmer, a Democrat, and put her on trial on bogus charges of treason. The United Nations Security Council says restrictions imposed on female aid workers in Afghanistan contradict commitments made by the Taliban to the Afghan people, as well as the expectations of the international community. It said the ban on women working for aid groups would have a significant and immediate impact on humanitarian operations. And locally, researchers at the Chinese University say pregnant women in Hong Kong are taking in excessive sodium double the recommendation of